Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. A career across startups and large companies, engineering and cloud ops, the multi-sided coin of development, QA, monitoring and DevOps, and going beyond algorithmic correctness, thinking, scale and deployment, tied in with developing empathy for what happens post-code development. Listen to the conversation between Rajiv Puranik, VP of Platform Engineering and Cloud Operations at Vosara Communications, in conversation with Shivaguru from PM Power Consulting. Rajiv shares his stories on creating a culture of trust and openness and his experience going through a school of hard knocks. He shares his views on assessing business value to determine criticality and decision-making amidst ambiguity and constantly moving points and using intuition alongside evaluating as many input parameters and outcomes as possible. And finally, how working with smart, motivated people inspires him along with learning something new constantly and leveraging his past experience and then his advice for people who are at a fork in the road. Listen on. Welcome, Rajiv, to the Software People Stories podcast. I'm really very excited to talk to you after we had an initial conversation and got to understand your career trajectory, where you've done a lot of things, very interesting things, very different things. And I'm sure your story would be inspiring to our listeners. As we normally do, we can start with uh, you doing the introduction, because that is probably the best, rather than me trying to say what all you've done. Okay. Uh, happy to do that. First of all, uh, Seva Guru, thank you for the opportunity. It's uh, I, I really enjoyed our earlier conversation and excited to be here for you know to talk to you and to your listeners. So, by way of introduction, my name is Rajiv Puranik. I'm based in US in California. Have been here for most almost entire my career, and currently I uh, am the vice president of platform engineering and cloud operations. So I have a sort of a dual thing, you know, both engineering development as well as deploying it in to scale in cloud. And, you know, in past for about 10 years or so, I've been primarily in the cloud doing engineering at, you know, companies like Twilio, Apigee, and before that I was at uh, Yahoo. And so along the way I have I viewed myself between corporate, large company jobs, you know, engineering leadership, as well as doing startups. So it's kind of been back and forth, a healthy mix of both, I would say. Yeah, that's good. Already I have a few questions for you. Go for it. So since uh, you're doing both engineering as well as cloud ops, in the last few years, there has been a lot of discussion on DevOps. You know, particularly, mm-hmm. I'm not so much talking about the technology part, but also getting the developers to understand or empathize with what happens in operations and production or you know, the experience of the users. Since you've seen both sides, what do you think is a good or a more effective role that devs can play in building the right products? Devs and DevOps are kind of two sides of, in fact, it's a multi-sided coin because the development, QA, and operations, they are all very much interrelated. 
okay and at some level even product is very much in the mix because a you have to start with understanding of what the right product is right without that whatever you develop will fall flat and then to specifically to your question what role does dev play i think dev needs to understand it's not and not just about getting the algorithms or the logic of the program right but to build it to to a level it can scale so here is what a typical ops part of it would be especially in the cloud right one is the security right is it does it not only do the right function but does it present itself to being attacked by malicious or whatever you know actors the second aspect of it is clearly scalability you know especially as you go into saas deployments you know you you are expected to effectively infinitely scale so the more aware developers are of these and not just of the program logic and how to compute something but of deploying this to scale and learning from each other it, frankly devops is a combination in my opinion of operations development and a very strong sense of qa monitoring that by the way i i missed out on that aspect as well a lot of it has to be done in a way that you are constantly monitoring not only the health of the deployed software but also what that software is really doing meaning you know what are the metrics which features are being used more often than others because that's where the product management comes in are you sinking resources in useless features or are you really concentrating on what really is resonating with your users those are the kind of things so it's really i consider them to be sides of a multi-sided coin effectively if that makes sense yeah curiosity question do you have any personal horror stories of devops for instance the very first uh, episode of this podcast i was talking about my own experience of writing my first program where everything worked on my terminal you know those days was terminals and connected to mainframes and all that then i submitted it as a batch got into an infinite loop so my learning that you need to know what will happen there so do you have any such stories and i will intentionally keep names out of it but yes i do in one place i was greeted one day to an email effectively saying hey i have basically shut down your or i have i'm controlling your website i have complete access to your keys and unless you pay me a ransom i'm going to basically ru- effectively ruin you Ooh. i mean i've gone through that experience and having to recover from that wow. so how do you develop this empathy or understanding of what happens after one writes code how do you you know the best part is i always for saas i maintain that devops is the first line of defense and the second line of defense is engineers so if they know they have a skin in the game and if at 1 am or 2 am in the morning and for some strange reason all the failures happen at 1 or 2 am so i don't know why it doesn't happen at 2 pm when you are wide awake right it's always in the early in the morning but but that joke aside if you are in the line of fire right so you are not tossing stuff over the wall and forgetting it i think it puts a lot more onus and lot more sense of ownership so uh, in in terms of having that empathy comes from effectively a shared experience of being in the same boat as the other person and when you realize what they have to deal with and and ultimately when they cannot deal with it you have to deal with works out pretty well you also mentioned that you worked in large companies small companies product platform environments mm-hmm. does this change based on the size or the type of problems that you are addressing to some extent yes it really depends more on what kind of philosophy large or small company you are following in other words if you are agile and you are trying to fail forward fast even in a large company in many ways it is like a small company setting but what does happen in a small company or a startup in particular is there is no safety net 
you kind of know that what you're building, if that doesn't work out or if it doesn't succeed, your options, your runway is very limited. Whereas there does tend to be a little bit of sense of personal security that even if this product doesn't work, I'll still have a job and I'll still be able to go do a next project. It's a little bit more of a roller coaster in a true start. But fundamentally, the pace at which you work and the intensity with which you work is pretty much determined by the culture of the large or the small organization. Is it a fail forward fast culture where you try something real quickly in an agile way? Or, or is it like this deliberate, we are going to spec everything to the last detail and then implement it because we know exactly what the product needs to do? Yeah, in the IT industry, we come across a lot of people who've, uh, who are good technically. And then mm-hmm. as they grow, they uh, end up with a team that they need to manage where mm-hmm. they still feel extremely responsible to the outcomes and whatever needs to be done. Mm-hmm. With the result, they tend to get into a lot of details and probably in more of a command and control style rather than a mentorship style. Mm-hmm. So in the case of fail forward, fail fast and all that, what are some tips that you would have for, let's say, the first time leader? to enable that culture or create that culture of trust or openness? Okay. So I would submit to you that my response is going to be completely independent of whether you are moving agile or fail forward fast or otherwise, because frankly, I won't change that answer in any set. And the key thing is you have to ask yourself, am I going to scale? Okay. And by the way, all of this comes from school of hard knocks, which is having made mistakes. And if I go back to my very early days of being a leader, people I worked with probably will uh, certainly say this guy, <laughs> this is not the guy I worked with. So I made my share of those mistakes. Uh, okay. So you have, you have a little bit of it is the learning curve of being there. But the most important learning that I, I carry is, it is true that ultimately it is my responsibility. But then when it comes to whether it means I control and manage it tightly and therefore A, ultimately fail because I cannot scale or do I let my teams learn, make mistakes, but in the process I build a culture and a, and a, and a depth in my team where I know, look, the way I look at it is this. Even if I'm a super programmer or super developer or whatever, right? I'm going to make mistakes, okay? And my team, even if I'm assuming, and it's a big if, right? They're not as expert at it as I am. They're going to make different mistakes. So it's just a question of what is the difference in mistakes we make and the frequency with it. So in order for me to scale as a leader, I'm better off helping team realize their potential and grow. Otherwise, I'm going to keep them in the box. I'm going to remain in the box. And ultimately, I'm not going to scale. So it's a question of taking either way you go, you're taking a risk, right? So you have to get comfortable with the fact that trusting your team to do the right thing, that's a better risk than not taking the risk of controlling it and doing it yourself and not scaling. Because good people will not stay with you if you don't let them grow. Mm. So you'll be constantly hiring new people and training them if you want to be a control freak. So how does this I mean, there are probably, out? by the way, just, just yeah. a little note on that. There probably are some exceptions who are so visionary that, you know, there are examples of various leaders in, in our industry who have are known to be control freaks but yet people love working for them because of the success they bring or you know just the vision they carry with them so they are while they are micromanagers they are also big visionaries but if you really look at an average of leadership spectrum those are more exceptions than the rule most micromanagers will actually fail eventually anyway you are up to something else i just taking this forward of this culture of trust probably becoming even more important now with the current scenario where everybody is kind of forced to work from home and you don't have over the shoulder kind of oversight. Mm -hmm. And 
still be able to work. Earlier, it used to be when teams were spread across time zones, other than culture, time zone logistics and all that made it difficult for them to all be in sync throughout. But now it's probably taken to the extreme. So what would be some things that at least these first time leaders need to change in terms of their styles of working and even team members, what should be different in the way, let's say I work as a team member when I had either my daily sync ups and so on in person to this working from home where probably there are a lot of other distractions and concerns which also are interfering. Understand. So the first and foremost is don't focus on activity, focus on the results. Right. So is this person or is this group of people producing results and set your, we call them OKRs, objectives and key results, set them up up front saying these are, these are my expectations. This is how I'm going to measure, uh, you know, you individually or as a team. And here is a goal. And if you start at that point, effectively monitoring that for that versus did you come to work at 9 a.m. today or 10.30 a.m.? Doesn't really matter, especially in the setting that you just mentioned, right? So the first and foremost is focus on the outcomes, not on the methods or whatever. And I'm not saying methods are completely to be ignored. Man. There are certain behaviors, responsiveness, some punctuality, being on time for you know staff meetings, etc. Those are still valuable. But by and large, focus on the outcomes is probably the most important thing here, right? And okay, I lost a little bit. What was the original question again? Because I, there was another point I was going to make. Uh, no, this was essentially about uh, the command and control micromanaging style versus trusting the team. And right. the, dimension, the dimension that this force distributed working adds to that. Correct. By the way, I was going to make another very important point. So... I don't, I'm not recommending leaders start with automatic delegation or trust. Trust is something in my opinion earned, right? So you do have to establish that and you have to tune it a little bit or you have to moderate it a little bit in terms of if you got someone who is absolutely new to a job or just got promoted, is still learning ropes, you have to, you have to direct initially because they're not necessarily very good at their craft. But your goal, even when you are doing, doing the direction has to be how do I get this person to be more and more independent as time passes by? And in fact, that should be built into there, this OKRs or objective and key results. Hey, today I'm sitting down with you and doing a review of this code line by line. Next time I want to change it, to, you know, in six months, I want you to be able to get, get it peer reviewed without much help from me or whatever the situation might demand. And so you move this person or this, uh, and, and by extension, the group along the ride of, you know, first starting with, uh, being directive as necessary to becoming more and more independent where you know, now you're delegating and empowering them rather than telling them exactly how it should be done. That's nice. A related point there is the obsession or I mean, rightfully on the product quality, but many mm-hmm. times that also gets extended to sticking behind or hiding behind a process or saying that unless I have this level of quality, I will not let it pass or I will not put it out in production versus products that are perennially in beta, perennially experimenting, trying to improve. Mm-hmm. So what would you think is a better approach? It, again, <laughs> like most things in life, it depends. Uh, it depends on what you're trying to do. Okay. If you are developing a spacecraft or you're doing a radiation equipment software for radiation, you better have an extremely high bar for quality, right? Not to hide behind the process or anything, but just because you care about the outcome. Ultimately, I believe that quality is a business metric. It is not an engineering or pure technical metric because quality should be, in other words, what I'm saying is quality should be tuned to the needs of the organization and the product, not to some sort of an abstract or absolute standard. 
right? On the other hand, if you are doing something which is less critical and the out, and I, I'm, I'm trying, I'm struggling to think of something which would be trivial, right? But, you know, maybe you can help me come up with something where, where quality is, is not that important. And if you, if you have to refresh the page, because once in a while it goes, you know, like gives you a 404 or whatever, right? It's okay. Nobody is going to die or because of, so again, things like healthcare, space exploration, those kind of things demand a much higher uh, degree of business-oriented quality metric than where you are just doing it something for fun and you're kind of building up trivial apps or whatever, right? A finance would be another big quality kind of a thing because you don't want to mess up somebody's deposit, right? So you have to be extremely quality conscious with that software as well. So it's really quality is a business metric in short. When it comes to that, many teams struggle with this and product managers also struggle to assign a business value when they want to launch something or when they want to even add a new feature or change a feature. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any approaches where, whether it is the OKR model or any other approaches, which help at least in simplifying the outcome or trying to quantify the output, like you said, and focusing on that and then tune the activities towards that, whether it is elaboration of the feature or it's about uh, the prioritization and how you break it up how you take it up in your execution. Right. So on the operational side, we do have such metrics. Uh, I'm talking about typically the service level agreement SLAs, where a particular service I'm offering, is it like a mission critical? Are we talking five nines, three, four nines, three nines? And based on that, you know the engineering you have to put in and the fail-safe mechanisms you have to put in. And I'm speaking mostly about here operation DevOps kind of things and not so much functional correctness, right? So functional correctness gets a little trickier because within that, what you're, let's say we we are talking about uh, giving someone a count of how many goods are left in the store, right? Like, you know, I'm about to go to a store and or I'm about to order. And I want to know how many widgets are left or how many seats are on a given flight. Is this considered this information absolutely critically important to be absolutely accurate? Or if it is a little bit older and it's you know, because your competition you're doing is, uh, you know, the whole Brewer's theorem, you can't, you can't have everything, all, all three elements of it to, in absolute sync, in sync. Those becomes now feature related questions. Does that, so for example, imagine you are trying to decide, decide the medicines you have left in your cabinet. That is obviously a much more critical thing than the number of probably uh, seats left on a flight because you might go for to uh, book one and you might have the software come back and say, sorry, I thought I had one, but I don't have it. But it's not as mission critical as knowing how many uh, you know health equipments you have in, in store because the patient might uh, suffer because of that. So those are things that really now become, uh, it kind of, again, the answer is it depends. There is no absolute answer. So typically what happens is in this case, hopefully you have someone on the team, typically a product manager or a, someone who leads possibly even on the engineering side the engineering leader who has enough sense for what is going on in business to assign that level of importance or that criticality for correctness to each and every feature within the given pr product yeah yeah this question has actually triggered more from um, something that you had mentioned earlier about uh, how you learn to be become an agile decision maker by working in different companies, different organizations and so on. Uh, so the question was more on uh, making decisions when there is ambiguity. Yes. So, okay. Frankly, I have never known a situation where a leader can afford to take decisions with all the data points because marketplace is this moving target, right? 
I mean, how many customers are you going to talk to? And how, how exactly one, let's say you have a feature and you ask 10 customers how important or, or not so important it is, right? And you come up with a very elaborate mathematical formula about deciding its criticality. Again, you have only interviewed those 10 customers. Every time you get the 11th customer, that function has changed, right? That calculation has changed. So it's impossible to be absolutely accurate. In fact, to some ex extent, trying to be absolutely correct is kind of a fool's errand. And you just have to develop that sense of, yeah, I know I'm not going to be 100% right, but I want to be generally right. And I want to be more right than especially my competitor. That is really what drives you. With AI getting into the realm of decision making, mm -hmm. do you see that helping or taking us into completely unknown areas and unpredictable consequences? Can you elaborate? Because it's such a, it's a such a generic question. I could okay. I could answer it in 10 different ways. Yeah. Just be a little bit more specific. Uh, unfortunately, it is not a specific question. It is just that we talked about the ambiguity associated with decision making, or even when things are ambiguous, one takes a call. And you said that you want mm -hmm. to be more right than the competition or what is probably best in that situation, etc. Right. Now, when we are trying to convert everything into algorithms and say that, yeah, my AI engine will be able to take decisions. The quality of data and what the engine has learned will matter a lot in terms of the decisions. Now, knowing that in most business situations, it is going to be at least some amount of amb ambiguity and some amount of variability also, even if you make some assumption that's mm -hmm. probably going to change by the time you decide and, and take action. What do you see the role of AI? Is it going to make us all more efficient or is it taking us into an area where we don't know what all is going to happen maybe it is right I, okay now i know i know i understand so first of all ai is a tool okay ai is not I, I do not consider ai as a way of delegating leadership decision okay so think of it as a widget or it's another uh, you know arrow in your quiver so to speak uh, the reason i say that is there are times that ai can give you better intuition than you having figuring it out in in your own head and that is when you have done a very good job of identifying all the input parameters that potentially impact your outcomes right and included them in your ai modeling calculations or whatever right and the second aspect is when you have sufficient data points observations including known outcomes so you can actually cross validate you know you ai model ha always has to run against some test data to make sure it makes sense right so when these conditions are made ai can be an excellent tool for you but if you have too few data points or you've ignored to include an important parameter right then ai tool could be very useless I mean, it's garbage in, garbage out at that point. The biggest challenge often that happens, especially with the more recent AI techniques that I've seen is the explainability. You know, oftentimes AI gives you a prediction, but if you look at how it computed that, it makes no intuitive connection. And then people struggle with, okay, this machine thing or this automaton is telling me something, but I don't know how it figured it out or what was the logic it used or what is the thinking behind the scenes. And sometimes there is no thinking. It's purely data-driven, you know, model kind of thing. But the challenge comes is when that AI, AI's computation or its recommendation is often counterintuitive to what you as a leader are looking yeah, right and then then you have to struggle through and ask yourself this question did i take every input into consideration could this ai be doing the right job but with the wrong data data or wrong 
wrong set of parameters or incomplete set of parameters that is something that you really have to you cannot blindly just say i will solve all problems right yeah yeah thanks so what is it that you have enjoyed the most in your career i would say the most would be working with some awesome people and learning from them and mentoring them i know learning from and it's often a bidirectional relationship because mm-hmm. sometimes you mentor someone on something and you learn heck of a lot and when that happens it is magic because it's a it's almost like a symbiotic relationship that is that is one and my close second would be working on a variety of things you know i started out in something and then my opportunities and my career took twists twists and turns and i've crossed at least three or four very distinct domains to get get where i am and i actually enjoy that process of learning something new and bringing something from my previous life or previous experiences into the new domain because often times it gives a very fresh perspective of looking at it so those would be my two but the first one has to be working with some really smart people smart motivated and great people yeah very nice because ultimately software is more of a team sport and the team that Absolutely. you work with yeah right so with that i would like to ask one of my favorite questions which is uh, for people either considering entering it or choosing it as a career or people who have been in it for a while and are wondering what should i do next since you said you've gone through multiple transitions in your career what would you have to tell them the most important thing is you know there are many tools out there and i you know the myers briggs and you know personality tests those kind of things that what i'm referring to is first find out what makes you really happy okay and i have this conversation is probably my most frequent conversation with folks because often they are at the sort of fork in the road and they're trying to typically say decide do i continue being a technical expert go down the architect career path or do i become people leader okay and often times it is the external social pressures what will my title say what how do i go to parties and explain them what my title is i'm not growing or i am growing or whatever right how many people report to me you know all of those things i don't want to completely trivialize them but at the end of the day those are very external metrics what really each of us each of us is unique we have our unique genius and to figure out where you will be happiest because you do something better than any you know you are world class at it. so the question you ask yourself what am i world class at and try to go in that direction because everything else will follow if you are trying to do something that you are really good at and something you enjoy doing that's the other so look at that intersection and hopefully your what you enjoy doing very what you are good at is also hopefully in demand otherwise uh, you know uh, you might be very good at it but you won't go anywhere with it but if you kind of take the best point of intersection of these three and just pursue that everything else will happen around you don't worry about short term you know personally i have like in past done leadership then i went back to being an individual contributor because i really wanted to get into this devops phenomena so for a while i actually just did devops i did not have anyone reporting to me but pretty mm. quickly they re- they realized that you know this guy can do devops but he's also good at leading people so i again my career took grew again there so my advice would be follow your genius follow your heart don't worry too much about these external metrics at all yeah that's very nice and very clearly put rajiv and uh, i'm sure that whenever anybody is confused using these basic things about being happy finding your calling i think is a good way to at least move on and i'm sure that with technology growing and permeating everywhere one will find one's own level yeah. you know 
in that sense it, and i know it's a little bit funny to mention this but that movie with 3d it comes to mind because that's exactly the core message of of that movie and i loved it for that reason wonderful i think that is a good positive uh, high note to end this conversation with and uh, i'm sure we will have opportunities to get more perspectives from your experience in the future i uh, would love to again i really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you and your audience here and you know happy to be on it again or hopefully you guys continue this series and make it successful because what you're doing would be a, is very helpful to people to your listeners in terms of especially people who are trying to figure out what to do in, next in their careers and i really view myself as more like i have learned through by making mistakes and if i can help somebody make fewer mistakes than i'm i made i think this would be <laughs> well worth spend you know spending my time on doing these kind of things so happy to do it yeah absolutely rajiv that has been the motivation for us also to do it and thanks once again sure by now and and be safe please take care of uh, this whole your health and this corona virus thing together we'll get over it by now we thanks siddharth for the music and malavika for promoting the software people stories if you like this episode please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network if you'd like to share your story contact us at podcast@pm-powerconsulting.com at